This is Channel 253. In this episode of Nerd Farmer. We want to get back to the caste, the very clear caste system that we had in 1940 and 19. That's what Make America Great Again has meant for me. And this book so clearly articulates that. And that's why I have really had such a hard time with white folks who say they're good people who buy into that Make America Great Again, because it is just a manifestation of the caste. And let's just... Let's uphold this caste system in even more strong ways. Did you know Channel 253 is member supported? I'm producer Doug Mackey, and I hope you will show your support by going to channel253.com slash membership and join. Thank you. This is the Nerd Farmer Podcast, a national conversation through a local lens. Welcome to the Nerd Farmer Podcast, brought to you by Libro FM. My name is Nate, and I'm your host, an American teacher abroad. I have been waiting quite a long time for this conversation, and so I kind of want to shut up and get right to it. Uh, this is our conversation, our long-delayed Nerd Farm reads about cast, and we're going to have a conversation about this book by Isabel Wilkerson, which I'm going to argue is probably the most important book you will read this year. Uh, my cast cast, my guests today are Alan Bilton, president of Pacific Lutheran University, uh, Aaron Jones, who's an educator and a DI consultant, and Hallie Kanigi, who is, long title, professional communicator, committed anti-fascist, and the podcast's most valuable listener. So all three of you, welcome to the show. Thank you. Uh, all three of you had read this book before I had, and so I kind of want to start off by asking, uh, what brought each of you to this book? Uh, Aaron, let's start with you. So doing DEI work, um, everyone's recommending books all the time. And I think in the spring, everyone was reading Abram X. Kendi and Jason Reynolds. Everybody was reading those two books. And then suddenly this book cast just popped onto the screen and suddenly everybody was reading this. And I, I was really fascinated by the title because I grew up in Europe. Um, I grew up with lots of friends from India and so I have always been thinking about this thing, cast, and it was just fascinating to see someone had actually written about it. And so that's what drew me to the book. Hallie, how about you? I will read just about anything. And so I'm always looking for a good book recommendation. And this one came to me as a recommendation. So I picked a Reddit. What, from who? I'm, I'm curious. Uh, actually, the leadership at my work uh, were reading this book as a group, and so I'd heard that they were reading it, and I always find it really interesting to know kind of what's on, on leaders' minds and the fact that they were going through this book journey together. I wanted to read it as well. Okay. And then, Alan, how about you? How did you get on this road? Yeah, so at PLU, we, we were doing a series um, both last fall and this spring and the spring before of um, small book groups, and we're trying to get people to read and have discussions about how we become an anti-racist institution and normally as president i don't get to participate i just don't you know frankly it's one of those culture busy i don't have the time uh but i was kind of um like hallie had heard about the book and was remembering kind of a conversation from 30 years ago in college about kind of the caste system in America. And I thought, I want to be a part of that. So we had a, we had a small book group here at uh, PLU. Actually, I have a series of them, and this is the book I chose to participate in. Awesome, awesome, awesome. Uh, Alan, question for you. Yeah. What do you, so when you're explaining this book to somebody, how do you define the term caste, given the way that she deploys it in the book? So I, I'm, you know, I'm a, uh, <laughs> a lot. I'm very literal most of the time, so I I take Wilkerson at the just the book definition of caste, and and I think that's important from my perspective. Um, frankly, it's how it's it's how it's employed. Um, you know, I, I mentioned earlier that back in college, I remember having a conversation in a, a Eastern Civ class about caste and thinking at the time, um, you know. I'm not a very involved person, especially when I was 18 years old and at Washington State. I was thinking, uh, you know, Indian caste system. Boy, that sounds a little bit like what we have here in America, but never really thought about it again, frankly. 
Um, and I, I think what's really important is that Wilkerson's bringing that conversation back into the ecosystem here in this country to help us talk about the fact that we, we are, we do have this existing caste system that's been around for 400 years. That's not a thing that only exists in the Far East, right? In that kind of, you know, lesser world that we've grew up in American history talking about. So um, I, I appreciate that she's just very, very upfront about what a cast is. And that, yeah, there's, there's three that we can talk about in history and we're one of them. Aaron, how about you? When you are talking about this book with people, how do you define the term cast? So they're actually, I want to pull her words from two different places that for me really clearly articulated um, how we came up with this understanding of, of how the dynamic of race and how race works to contribute to this idea of caste. So she says, I, I highlighted this, I like circled it. She said, color is a fact, race is a social construct. And then she also says, the social pyramid known as a caste system is not identical to the caste in a play, though the similarity in the two words hints at a tantalizing intersection. When we are cast into roles, we are not ourselves. We are not supposed to be ourselves. We are performing based on our place in the production, not necessarily on who we are inside. And that is caste. And, and I just think for myself, having grown up in Europe, I didn't play that role. I didn't play, I didn't have to play the same role in Europe that I do in America. And kind of, you went backwards, you started here and went overseas. I, mm -hmm. well, I started here and then spent my formative years in Europe and then came back here. And it wasn't until I got to America that I was expected to take a certain place, that I was expected to not be smart and that there was doubt. And so that cast became so apparent for me as an 18 year old in college, uh, my, literally my first days of college, I, I didn't understand, but I recognized it pretty quickly because I had heard about it. I would add South Africa, you know, having grown up in the Netherlands, I also had this understanding of caste based on the system in South Africa that was coming, falling as I was leaving Europe and coming to America, that system was falling, but I had studied that system. And so it became really apparent to me as a young person, 18, 19, 20 in this country, that, oh, these are similar rules. We just don't say, we, we want to deny. Because I would offer that caste was a way, that, and, and Americans would always say, no, that's India, that's not us. So this book really confirmed so much of what I believe since I came to America in 1989. Yeah, race and racism exist everywhere, but a particular racial hierarchy and caste is a yeah. not uniquely American concept, but is a concept that America has and embraces. Uh, yeah. Hallie, one of my favorite things about you is is that you're constantly doing this work and trying to get other white folks to do the work, like even on a jog, screaming at some guy. Um, <laughs> when you talk to somebody casually about this book, how do you encapsulate the term cast? I think, um, and I'm borrowing, I think, Wilkerson's words. I didn't, this isn't my um, interpretation, but just the sorting of people into a hierarchy is the caste system. And then the way that she applies it here is that race is the application of that sorting. This is really my favorite kind of nonfiction book where it's history that I thought I knew, but with mm. a slightly different context added to it where I'm like, whoa, now I actually get it. Um, so this, I thought it was a pretty powerful way to kind of explain how the systems of racism shaped America. I oftentimes go into a book like this thinking that I may not be the audience for this book, but this book was also made for me, if that makes sense. And so when I was reading this, I was like, who is this book for? Like, is this book for the history nerd who already is aware? Is this book for, like, because it became the Oprah Book Club book. Like, like who is this book for, right? No, Erin, yeah, please. Oh, my gosh. So I have, in the last week since I've been really deeply reading um, to prepare for this, I've been taking screenshots and sending it to people and um, <laughs> just like, oh, this person needs this little piece and this person, hopefully they'll read it if they see this piece. And so I've sent little screenshots to white pastors and um, white folks in leadership. But I also have a friend from the Caribbean who very dark skinned and has a PhD from UW, man, super... And I send him screenshots and he's like, girl, I already know this. I'm like, I know you know this. I know you don't need this book and you need this book. I mean, it's just 
because there's nothing in this book that was surprising to me. And yet to see it so clearly articulated and laid out yeah. for me, even though I feel like I've experienced it all or I've heard it all, I've seen it all through the stories that my husband tells of his family who are black folks who've been in this country through slavery on both sides of his family. Um, it still, for me, confirmed so many of the things I've said that people have said to me, you're crazy. That's not true. Like, but it is, though. She says it is. Isabel Wilkerson says this is true, so it must be true. Yeah. Alan, how about you? Uh, who do you yeah. think this book is for? Well, yeah, it's interesting listening to that. Um, I, I actually got well into this book thinking, damn, I need my brother's. <laughs> back in the Yakima Valley to read this. I need my, my alabaster brethren that I grew up with to read this book, right? But the further I got in, I thought, no, this, this book is actually for me. Uh, you know, mm. there, there were some serious misconceptions I had about understanding, you know, my white relatives, my older brother, and how they approach life. Because there's a, there's a bit in the book fairly early on um, that I had to go back and reread because I got into the book and I thought, now I need to go back and read that. And the realization I had was, you know, whites mistakenly, because just as a little background, I come from a pretty poor family. I'm the first in my family to go to college. There are eight of us, um, eight kids, you know, we never really wanted, but we didn't have a lot of money. So, you know, you've all heard the argument, um, you know, well, yeah, but you brought yourself up by your bootstraps, right? It was this realization that the argument that I hear is we as whites can mistakenly think that we are in a lower caste when the truth is we're in a lower position in dominant caste, right? That wasn't obvious to me. And it was kind of a, a, a little aha moment for me. It wasn't like the, the one passage that really resonated the most, but then I read, reread the book with that different lens. And now I feel like, Hey, I can go back and have a conversation um, with folks that I, re I frankly have refused to understand. Right. I've refused to understand the perspective, but now I understand, I understand a lot more about kind of that, the fear, right. Of being subordinated. And, and yeah, that, 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 that just kind of blew my mind, frankly. I, I really read that first chapter like five times. Yeah. Hallie, I'm going to phrase the question different for you. So you're a book evangelist. Who are the people you're sharing this book with and who are you not sharing this book with? I've got, um, Two answers to this question. The first one, um, as I read it, one thing that it's really interesting about this book, just as a book, is there's so much of the author here. And so mm. when you go back to your question about who is this for, I think in a way it was for Isabel Wilkerson, mm. where it felt like this was the story that she needed to tell and unpack and kind of give this meaning to how she had experienced her life. So that's really interesting because it's almost, it's a it's a nonfiction history book, but there's an element of memoir in it too with some of the stories she tells. Um, for me, honestly, any middle-class, well-to-do white person needs to read this book. Um, for folks listening, they can't see me, but I'm a young-ish, not like TikTok young, but young-ish white woman. Uh, so I grew up in the 80s and my race education was, we all look the same underneath. We don't talk about race. Uh, racism is over. That happened in the 60s. Um, and so I went from growing up in a really like white dominant environment where my race became the default. And in my mind, it was just kind of a fact about me. But I'm now in a place where I realize literally every aspect of my life and what I do and who I am is directly related to my whiteness. And so I think this book is really helpful in, in the ways where it's harder to spot how I'm coming at something from a white lens. How am I coming at something from trying to preserve my position in the caste system and my comfortable mm. place of dominance or whatever that might be? Yeah. Yeah, Aaron, please. So the other thing that I thought, and, you know, I mentioned Amber Max Kendi and Jason Reynolds earlier I have similar thoughts about this book. You know, the reason that Jason Reynolds book was written is because Abram's book is so, it's so dense, right? And so not everyone's gonna read it, but a lot of people read Jason Reynolds who wouldn't read Abram X. Kendi. I feel a bit similar in this regard that there are people who need to read this book who won't, 
because it's just, it's so much, it's so much. And so I thought about that as I was reading is I'm a reader, like my degree is in literature. So yeah, duh, I love reading a good book and it's, it's long, it's about 400 pages. And, um, and so my worry is there are people who need to read this book that won't read this book because it's just too long. It's it for them and, and they and they need to read it. And so, you know, I've been thinking already, how do I take chunks of it and pieces of it and help people understand this book is so important. Like I need you, even if it takes you five months, I need you to just read this chapter or, uh, you know, it's just, it's tough. I don't know. Well, the book's doing two different things, right? So there's the there's the history that's being told. And then Isabel Wilkerson is writing a memoir that reminds me a lot of Claudia Rankin's Citizen. And Citizen might be the entree book that people need to read because what Citizen does is a citizen, it engages the, well, in this book as well, it engages like the slavery and violence of the caste system, but then at the same time also looks at the experience of middle-class black folks. And so... Even as a middle-class black person, like when Wilkerson is talking about like her frustrations and the microaggressions, and actually just the aggression aggressions she experienced while traveling, I was nodding my head sitting about sitting, right, right? And so like nobody wants to hear me complain about being treated shabbily by other passengers in first class, and I'm not going to do that, but it also happens, right? And yeah. so that's just like that's, that's all happening in the book as well. Yeah, Alan, please. Oh, no, I'm just I'm taken off of what both Hallie and Aaron said. And, and uh, Hallie talking about the 80s and then Aaron talking about, I just want to find the passages I can share with folks to get them interested. Right. So what I was talking earlier about, you know, where I grew up. So I'm, I was like a teenager in the 80s and I actually saw, I think this book helped me reframe my own history. So I, I actually saw that transition of, of, and how the caste system played into in the 80s, this transition of conservatism, meaning um, kind of morphing into what we're seeing today, frankly, right? So watching that happen, I wanna go back to my roots and say, hey, I've got this book with Nazi intrigue, right? Um, any way I can get him to think about giving this book a chance. And that, you're exactly right, Nate, that interweaving of the personal narrative, the memoir in this book, really continues to connect it throughout uh, right up to the very end. I kind of want to tell people, read the last chapter, which I never want anybody to do. Start with the last chapter, read the whole book and read that last chapter again. Start with hope, end with hope. It's, um, it's spectacular. Yeah. Go ahead, Aaron. So one of the things that you just said, um, Nate, is about, so first of all, I grew up in the 80s too. So I was a teenager in the 80s. So I suspect we're about the same age, but uh, which is a little crazy to think about. Um, this is my 50th year. Oh Lord. I can't even believe that happened. But, um, I thought about what you said about planes and traveling, and we don't talk about the way that we're treated in first class. And I, as a public speaker earned my way to first class a year and a half ago. Um, cause I earned so many Alaska miles that I earned my way to first class. And the, the amount of experiences that I have that I just don't share out loud um, because we're taught, like don't just appreciate the opportunity to be in first class, so we don't talk about it. And yet the numbers of times that when, when they would call first class forward and I would walk up with my bag, I could see people looking at me. And um, y'all can't see me yet, but I'm six feet tall with an Afro. So, like I can't hide. So when I show up in space, people are already staring anyway. Um, but just to articulate that the message from white people is if you work hard enough, like just work hard enough and be a good person and this won't happen to you. Y'all, I have worked my behind off my entire life and it still happens. And it doesn't matter how hard I've worked. It doesn't matter that I have a degree from PillU and a degree from Bryn Mawr. It do that doesn't matter. Um, so just, I want, I need white folks to understand it's not about hard work. Like, I'm not denying that poor white folks works. I mean, you can work hard as a white person too. So I'm not denying that white people work hard, but I am saying that as a black woman, it doesn't matter how hard I work. It doesn't matter how many degrees I have. All of that evaporates when I get on a plane and I'm sitting in first class that all evaporates. Absolutely. And there are ways that we, and we learn to just put up with the indignities and not talk about it. And so for her to speak those out loud for me, we're so validating and I may never share them anywhere else, but just to know, oh my gosh, I'm not crazy because that's what happens to us. We think 
I'm crazy. I'm the only one going through this. And wow, and I can't talk about it. There's nowhere to talk about it. So to watch her clearly articulate the very things that I've watched was so life-giving to me. Well, and, and let's let's name why you can't talk about it. So you can't talk about it with white folks because they think you're imagining it. And you can't talk about it with black folks because they're like, you're in first class, you bougie Negro. Why are you complaining? And so like literally it is just a constant gaslighting, like 100 um, percent. Listener Richard Thomas actually nailed this. He had a beautiful uh, response to the book. But one thing he pointed out is that there's a passage in the book that looks at hypertension and high blood pressure and premature death. And I'm thinking right now about a recent loss. Uh, we lost yeah. uh, Sonic's guy, Sonic guy. Uh, recently. Yes. Uh, uh, died of a heart attack, age 49. And yeah. so I'm, I, I'm moved. I was moved by Richard's comment that those same levels of hypertension and same levels of premature death don't exist, oh. right? Don't exist in other places with, with black populations. And I'm somebody who lost my father in his early 60s, lost both of my uncles, my mother's side in early 60s. And so like my brother and I joke that like it's 63 and tap out. But like we because of this caste system, it's a contributing factor to why we lose so many black men so young, not just from violence, but also from heart attacks. Uh, I want to I want to pivot and make a kind of declaration for the audience really fast. Uh, two things. If you're listening to this and you haven't read the book, stick with us. Stick with us. You should read the book, but stick with us. It's a conversation. And then two, I want to declare that I was being intentional with my selection of my cast. So each of the people who is on the show is somebody who does the work in their own way. And so... Alan is trying to turn a, tr a fairly traditional like Lutheran university into an anti-racist institution. Uh, Hallie is an organizer for Tacoma against Nazis, trying to organize middle-class white folks and normal white folks to fight the fash. And Aaron goes out and has conversations about equity constantly with people. And so I'm intentionally reaching out to folks who are doing the work to have this conversation. Uh, speaking of this conversation, I... Uh, I found myself at a point in the book wondering about the choice of cast. Like this book could have been written and called Race in America. This book could have been called like the problem we all deal with. This book could have been called a bunch of different things. What do you all think about the choice of cast as the title and cast as being like the centralizing theme for the book? Hallie, I want to get first crack at this. Um, I think... It was just a totally, um, using the word cast reframed my understanding of what I thought I understood about American history. Um, I feel like every time I think I kind of get it where I'm like, yeah, this is a racist system that we're all in. Then I read something new and I'm like, you know, like in an FBI movie when they're looking at the security footage and they're like, enhance, enhance, enhance. Like every new book <laughs> I read, the picture gets a little clearer where this one, like, I knew the system was racist. I'd gotten that far. And in my mind, I guess it was um, because the system was designed by old timey racists. Of course, the output was going to be racist. And then this book reframed it to like, oh, no, it was designed by old timey racists, but also very specifically and deliberately to be as racist as possible and keep people into this caste hierarchy. Um, and so I think just that framework was really a helpful way for me to look back both at history, but also my life and where I am and where my friends are um, and the continued modern application of it. Yeah. Alan, how about you? Your thoughts on the choice to use cast as the framing for the book? Yeah, you know, um, I think Wilkerson says, and I can't remember where in the book, but it says cast is fixed and rigid. Race is fluid and superficial. And we talk a lot about racism, anti-racism on campus. And we talk a lot about the need for systemic change, right? But I think the thing that CASP does is it, it brings those things together in conversation. So we can actually talk about things that people aren't comfortable with, with the historical context, right? So I really appreciate keeping it simple, right? Because I think people have less ability to interpret what a CAST system is so using cast makes it really clear what we're about to talk about. So, yeah, I, I think using something a little more esoteric in the title just wouldn't have captured people's attention. It makes it easier to recommend the book, frankly. Yeah. Aaron, how about you? Your thoughts on the framing device? So, you know, I have wondered as someone who does work around racial equity and anti-racism, like, can I just start talking about cast? And I, 
I don't know that I can yet because I don't think it has enough um, of a foothold yet. Mm. And the thing that struck me immediately about the framing, first of all, language is important. And so what calling a thing a thing, I think is really important. So I, I like the idea of naming this thing as more than racism. I think it, that was really powerful. The other thing that it did for me, and I have said this for a long time too, or I've, I've at least thought it in a lot of places, having grown up in Europe in the 70s and 80s, you know, every one of my Dutch friends lost someone to Auschwitz, every single one of my Dutch friends. And so what I have heard in America is we're not like Germany. Like I've heard that for 30 plus years. We're, we're not as bad as that. Like we don't do that thing. And so for me, the power of caste was, yeah, y'all, we are actually, we're worse than Germany in some ways, right? And so I think there's this American notion, number one of exceptionalism. There's this, yeah, we are exceptional in our wickedness too. Um, but there's this American notion that somehow we are better than other people. And I think the challenge of, um, I was asked yesterday in a DEI consulting that I did in Spokane. Well, I did it from Zoom. Um, to Spokane and Montana, I was accused of bringing politics into my DEI work because someone at the end asked, how have the last four years with Trump been for you? And I said, horrid. Like there are things that he, and I said, this is not about Republican. This is about him as a person, just the way that he talks about race, the way that he talks about people who are other, who are not white men is just horrid. And somebody, um, private messaged me on the Zoom call and said, I can't believe you're making this political. And I was like, oh, it's all political. I said that out loud. I said, this is all political. And I'm not talking Republican, Democrat. This is this conversation about race is very political. But I think Americans, especially who've never traveled, think America better than it is. And so the whole notion of make America great again for me has always been great for who? Like, to me, this is more we want to get back to the caste, the very clear caste system that we had in 1940 and 19. That's what Make America Great Again has meant for me. And this book so clearly articulates that. And that's why I have really had such a hard time with white folks who say they're good people who buy into that Make America Great Again, because it is just a manifestation of the caste. And let's just let's uphold this caste system in even more strong ways. Yeah, there's a ton of folks who get political actually means you said things I didn't like. And I feel like the more we can just name that when they do that, the better off we are. All right. I have to take a break here. When we come back, Alan, we'll start with you. Uh, <laughs> we will be right back. This is Nate Bowling, host of the Channel 253 podcast, Nerd Farmer. When I'm not listening to podcasts, I'm listening to audiobooks. And I choose Libro FM. Libro has all the books I'm looking for with a low monthly subscription, and I'm not enriching the pockets of a certain billionaire when I use them. Here's some great read slash listens I want you to try out on Libro. If you're an activist, check out Stacey Abrams' book, Our Time Is Now. We owe her so much after November. The least you can do is listen and hear what she has to say. For the woke or aspiring woke, check out Cast by Isabel Wilkerson. It's a revelation about our country's social system. And for the nerds among you, my people, if you haven't read The Three-Body Problem, you owe it to yourself to start right now. The entire trilogy will take you places you've never been in science fiction. Libro has over 150,000 books in their catalog, so if those aren't right for you, you'll find something you like. Listeners of Channel 253 can start the service with a two-month audiobook membership for the price of one. Go to Libro.fm, L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and enter the code Tacoma. And we are back. I want to thank you for downloading the show today. Channel 253 and this podcast are a labor of love in the community. I am going to ask you if you are enjoying this show and this conversation to think about supporting our work and also check out some of the other shows on the network. Um, right now, Citizen Tacoma, hosted by Eric Hanberg, is doing a interview series with members of the city council. And he's talking to Tacoma city council members and putting them uh, on the spot 
and getting their takes on police accountability issues here in the Northwest. It's a uh, a tough series to listen to, honestly. Uh, there's I, I've heard three of the interviews so far, and in each one, I found moments of like enlightenment, also disappointment. But like that's the work that we do on the network. It's tough conversations about issues that matter to us in the community. If you support the show, support that idea, please think about joining Channel Two Five. There's a membership with a membership. If you join, it is four dollars a month or forty dollars a year, and you're joining to access to our Channel Two Five Three only member only Slack. And our Slack right now is having a bunch of conversations, actually. At this very moment, they're posting photos of snow. Um, but prior to that, there's been conversations about uh, the recent uh, happenings on Wall Street and the episodes about the city council and a host of other things. So just if you want to be plugged into your civic community here in Tacoma, channel253.com slash membership is $4 a month, $40 a year, and it's worth it. All right, Alan, I want to go to you. You were jumping to get in there. Oh, just uh, Aaron said something that was so striking uh, about caste and, and that, you know, as Americans, particularly as white Americans, you'll hear that argument that Aaron just shared that we're not as bad as Nazi Germany. Right. No, it's true. We didn't have a concentrated period from 33 to you know 44 where six million people were killed because of a caste system. We have 400 years of it. And we were just talking earlier about health inequity in this country. Uh, look at police violence. I mean, it's we've not stopped the killing. So it, it's amazing to me that anybody can use that argument. I mean, uh, that 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 joke I made earlier about, you know, wanting to get my um, my friends and family back home to read this by talking about Nazi intrigue. It, it is interesting. On one hand, that will draw them in. But on the other hand, they will use that very argument, Aaron, that you shared. So um, I really appreciate you bringing that up. Well, and that resonated with listeners as well. So Aaron Early, Don Boris, and Sandy Boyd all landed on that point, addressing the idea that, like, there are many ways in which the despising of black Americans that the American system engages in and the violence that it communicates are as bad as or as worse as things that happened in Nazi Germany. And there are also elements where Nazi Germany looked at America and was like, that's too far, fam. And so like that, that's struck with, that's really stuck with me. And so somebody who has not read the book and somebody who's going to be like the 1619 Project Truther is going to bail out on that part. But like there are multiple elements in the American racial system that are more rigid than the Nazi system against Jews and against the Roma and everybody else. And like that's something we need to deal with. And Alan, I really appreciate your framing talking about time. So Nazi Germany was a decade and we're talking about a 400 year system that is ongoing. We're in denial about Hallie, you, you have like, yeah, please go ahead. I want to talk about good white people for a second, if that's OK. I wrote down a lot of quotes about Nazis um, because I think what I kept thinking about in this book and then I've continued to think about, especially since January 6, 2021, is there is this white tendency and desire back to Aaron's point about Hmm. wanting to be better than and disassociate yourself from racism and from all of these bad things. And so this idea of like, well, we're not as bad as Nazis. Well, surprise, actually, they looked to America for inspiration and thought the one drop rule was too harsh, even for Nazis. Um, but the conversations I've been having lately with with people who I would consider more progressive and who have probably done some of the reading and done some of the work, even with those folks, it's really hard to get to a place where we are all accepting and acknowledging and unpacking our own culpability in the events that led up to January 6th. I've heard from a lot of folks who are like, yeah, this really uh, told me that I need to make more of an effort with my conservative relatives and talk to them about MAGA and how voting for Trump really led to January 6th. I'm like, we need to talk to ourselves about how our upholding of this system led to January 6th. And you don't get a pass just because you've read uh, how to be an anti-racist. Like we we are all part of this. And so I thought that um, some of those conversations, I maybe went in too hot on Twitter talking about how Nazis were inspired by America, but this was the hardest, not even concept because it's a historical fact. This was the hardest section, I think, for like the good white people that I was interacting with. I'm Mm -hmm. I'm putting good in quotes. People can't see this on the podcast. Um, But that was like one of the hardest concepts for people to wrap their heads around was like, but wait, but we are better. Um, cause you, you just yeah. want to disassociate so strongly. 
Yeah, Sandy Boyd talked in particular on Twitter about how we saw on January 6th that many white Americans chose their whiteness over democracy. And they were very willing to expel uh, the electors and overturn the votes of people from Georgia and Arizona and Pennsylvania because they see that it's Philadelphia, Atlanta and Phoenix. And the idea just is like, like I, I, that I can't get my head past that. I also can't get my head past the fact that there's this like excuse making and distancing we're allowing. So we're saying there's people who are like, well, well I was in Washington, D.C. at the protest, but I didn't breach the Capitol. Right. So like those Seattle police officers. So they attended a protest whose, whose purpose was to overturn an election, but they did not commit the felonious act of going into the Capitol. So, so ergo, it's OK. Like, no, you're still an anti-democratic zealot who is who is putting your whiteness over democracy. Aaron, please. Yeah. And so, man, January 7th, I was just angry. I was just angry and I wasn't angry really at the people who stormed. The, I mean, I was angry at them. But in my mind, I've been to at the White House, as have you, right? And so I could imagine, like, what would happen to Black bodies if they were trying to climb a fence or, and that was the first thing I saw is, oh my gosh, like BLM couldn't even get anywhere close. And and so I was just having all these thoughts, but what made me really angry was all the people who said, this is not us. This is not really America. And I'm like, y'all, this is us. This is us. And your denial of this fact is just disgusting. And, and I, and again, the good the good white people. I mean, I, I love that you said that because it's, you know, all these pastors and, you know, my husband is a pastor in a church that was diverse for which almost all the brown people have left now um, because things that happened in the spring were not dealt with. And um, folks are looking around and wondering, why did all the brown people leave? Well, I'll tell you why, because y'all were silent. And so... You know, I have been very critical of my Christian, white Christian brothers and sisters, because I'm like, okay, maybe you didn't like what Trump was saying, but I didn't see any of you critiquing him. I didn't see one of you step up and say, wow, his behavior is really horrible. I'm pro-life, but I mean, it just, and I, I just, that has really disgusted me. And I've really struggled with how do I love them? Like, these are supposed to be my brothers and sisters. I'm really, to be honest, having a really hard time loving my conservative white brothers and sisters who see themselves as really good people. And yet their silence tells me volumes about, again, back to what Nate said, their whiteness is more important than their faith really. And um, I have come to call myself a Jesus girl, not a Christian, because I think white American Christianity has been so usurped by this caste system. Um, it is more a cultural expression than it is a faith expression. And I've had to distinguish myself from that because I don't believe or follow in the ways that I'm seeing so many white Christian people. I just don't understand them anymore. But I do. I do understand them. But um, anyway. No, that's real. That's real. Uh, Alan, a question for you in particular. Uh, how is this book informing your work leading the university? Wow. You know, it's... Uh... There's an interesting dynamic on a university campus, right? Because we have an entire generation coming through um, college system now that is proactively interested in black history and proactively interested in understanding this. And yet we have, um, you talk about a system that is part of the caste system, higher education is, right? So how do, how, it, it helps inform how we might deconstruct some of those existing caste systems in higher ed. Um, you know, I was struck earlier by the fact that Aaron talking about getting a degree at PLU, right? So Aaron, I'm gonna ask a personal question. You don't have to answer it, but are you a Lutheran? So I was raised, my mother is Lutheran and my father's Presbyterian. So, and my, anyway, I don't wanna right. say that on the podcast, no, but there's okay. other stories <laughs> about my, <laughs> There are stories about my family who also is from Minnesota. Minnesota. Okay. Do we think about George Floyd and all that happened? Right. You know, good Christian white people right. um, who were not so happy about my white parents adopting a Negro baby. Yeah. So just I'm gonna leave it there. Yeah. So, but right like today, you wouldn't consider yourself a Lutheran, right? Okay. So this is why this is important. So. Um, we can work all day long about changing our curriculum and we can work all day long about 
teaching, educating folks, sharing, right? But there is something systemic. And if you want an example of it, here's a really good one. So Aaron, I would say, not exactly an underachiever, right? Uh, I haven't been at the White House, right? I'm not out leading at the forefront of this work. You, as a graduate of PLU, with all the skills you have and everything you bring until about six months ago, would not qualify to be the president of PLU. We had built into our 130-year bylaws that you had to be a practicing Lutheran or take communion with a partner church. The Lutheran Church in America is the widest church in America, wider than the Mormon church, right? Um, you talk about a built-in systemic limitation. So when the poster child for you know, white privilege was appointed president at a time when we were trying to, to diversify leadership at this institution, the, one of the things that I required in taking the job is that the board work on changing that. And so after 130 years, we changed that last year. That was shortly after reading CAST. So you talk about a direct impact that work like this can have. There's a good example. Our board and our corporation, which is made up of 50% of our board, our members of the ELCA, the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, voted unanimously to change that bylaw. So now, Aaron, you can be our president, and I would welcome you to take this chair. <laughs> So, Hallie, if I know you, you have a well-worn copy of the book sitting nearby with about 400 highlights and 87 post-it notes in it. <laughs> um, Hallie, are there any passages in particular that you think are worth sharing with the audience? Yes. Um, I, many of my bookmarks were on stories about Nazis. So I will, we talked about that a little bit. So um, I'll skip ahead. My sister-in-law actually read this book as well, and we were talking about it, and she's an educator, um, so that's kind of the lens that she's, she's a white woman, and she's a teacher, and so that's how she's thinking about this, is how does this apply to the education system, and what is her role and responsibility to, to change things up, um, and one of the ones that she shared that I thought was really powerful was um, dehumanize the group and you have quarantined them from the masses you choose to elevate and have programmed everyone, even some of the targets of dehumanization to no longer believe what their eyes can see, to no longer trust their own thoughts. Um, I thought that was really powerful and also directly connects to some of the points like Aaron that you were sharing earlier about questioning even the experiences that you've had that you, you know felt wrong, but feeling like you couldn't talk about them. You want me to read more? I was, honestly, yes. <laughs> I was really struck by, like, there, there was one passage where, like, it was talking about the 2008 election, and it said that the things that we're seeing in American politics are so ingrained in American politics that we don't even understand, like, how ingrained they are, that Barack Obama won every state that Abraham Lincoln won, and that Barack Obama earned only one in ten white votes in the state of Mississippi. Whenever I see Mississippi stuff, I think about my own family and my own life. Like my father was born in Lowell, Mississippi in 1930 and like was born basically a sharecropper and like had experiences in Mississippi. There's a reason why he left. And so just, just, just the, the, the non I, – I think that one of the ways that people lie to themselves about all of this is, is they try to say not only is it in the past but the distant past. But like – there are folks who are walking the streets today who are with us who were civil rights warriors like the like Fred Hampton would be if he wasn't killed at age 21 would be like younger than my mother like like these the the, the recentness of all of this I think is really profound Aaron same question to you we'll, we'll go back to Hallie for more more of her, her highlights but you were sitting Cutter's Point marking your book up I saw on Twitter uh, what are some passages you want to share so um and I'm thinking about this in the context of education. So, Holly, I love that you're you were talking about your sister because I think about the implications of education for this. So, at one point, she says, "For much of the time that African Americans have been in this land, they have had to find ways to stay alive in a structure that required total submission. A close reading of their betters and the performance of that submission, in order to avoid savage punishment, they must obey at all times and under all circumstances, cheerfully and with alacrity," said a Virginia state uh, slaveholder 
they had to adjust themselves to the shifting and arbitrary demands of whatever dominant person they happened to be encountering in that moment. And I think about how many of our black babies in school mm-hmm. do the same thing as their white counterparts, but end up expelled or excluded for some reason. And so that for me is just horrifying. Um, and then I think about, and this get back, gets back to what I said about you can earn all the degrees you want. When she was going to do that interview, the New York Times interview, and um, the guy just doesn't believe that she could possibly be um, a reporter for a big, she just can't believe it, no matter how many times she says it. So my, um, so she talks, she shares the story of, of doing a report of a powerful business person, and he just doesn't believe that she could possibly be the reporter that's assigned. Um, and she says the story that ran that Sunday, because I had not been able to interview him, he didn't get a mention. So she was meaning to interview a bunch of people. And um, what she says is the problem could have happened any place because the problem is, in fact, at the root. And I that struck me so hard when I was the assistant state superintendent. In fact, my first job, my first big speech as the assistant state superintendent was in Yakima, Alan. Um, I was going to speak at the superintendent's conference in Yakima. I was speaking on behalf of then um, Randy Doran was the superintendent. He couldn't go for some reason. And so at the last minute, he knew that I was a public speaker and sent me in his place. He didn't tell me that it was the rural remote superintendent's conference. He just said it was the superintendent's conference. So again, white privilege, right? Like not thinking about who he's sending didn't bother to tell me this is the rural remote superintendent's conference. So I show up, my parents had just moved here from Europe. So my white mom is like, I want to see Yakima. I've never been to Yakima. I'm like, okay, mom, we'll drive to Yakima. So she is in her khaki pants and a white blouse. I am in my best suit because it's my first keynote speech ever. And I am going to look sharp. And so I'm in a suit. She's in khakis. We show up at the Yakima Convention Center. And the woman in charge of the conference walks right up to my mother and says, oh, you must be Erin Jones, the assistant state superintendent. And my mother, so my mother's that Lutheran Northern Minnesotan who, um, super passive aggressive, super passive. I love my mama. I love you, mom, if you're listening. But she she knows she's passive aggressive. She, like if you have ever seen the cartoons with the head blowing off, like that was my mom in that moment. She was ready to lose her mind. And she points at me. And she says, my daughter is the assistant state superintendent. Here's your keynote speaker today, Erin. Give me your keys. And she snatches her keys, my keys from me. And the lady never apologizes. And now I am taken into the ballroom to do this keynote. And I look out at the audience and it's all white men over the age of 60. Like all of the room, there were no women in the room and they are all older white men. And now I have to give a keynote speech. And this woman has not apologized to me. And she's said nothing to me beyond uh, the green rooms over here and and that's it and now i have to talk to an audience that i don't know how to connect to when i give a speech and they stand up i mean it's a great speech and my mom is not in the room and she is out in the car and she's been out in the car the entire time and here's what my mom says that just reminds me of this moment she said you know what honey you've talked about feeling invisible before and I couldn't ever understand that because you're six feet tall. I, I couldn't understand how you could. She said, this is the first time I understand what it is to be invisible. And here's what she said that was so deep. That just reminds me of this moment. And if I were not your mother, maybe you would be invisible to me too. And that's why I'm crying. And we sat in the car and cried. Do you know that moment would change my mother's life forever? It would change our lives forever. She is the first one to send me book titles and articles now because she gets it. That experience for her is what was the tipping point as a white woman for understanding, oh my gosh, and if you were not my daughter and I didn't have a vested interest, I may not care in the same way. And that crushes me as a white woman. Like I know that I need to do better. I found myself not walking. Well, let's see, let's say this right. I found myself looking for glimmers of hope but not finding very many. Hallie, I want to turn to you because in many ways, your activism to me is one of the glimmers of hope that I see. Uh, What's your takeaway from this book? Do you find this as being something that's like, is this unchangeable or immutable or is this something we can make progress on? 
Let me think about how to answer that. I think I love that deliberation. I love that deliberation. Yes. It's hard because what I see as progress sitting as a white woman is I've watched for two or three years as my fellow progressive middle-class white people developed the barest of language to even be able to talk about these issues. And so that feels like progress or when we started talking about Tacoma against Nazis, I encountered many good progressive white people who thought the phrase white supremacy was too spicy. And like, that was really off-putting. Um, so a couple of years later, and with everything that happened following George Floyd last summer, a lot of the folks who I saw being really uncomfortable even naming the problem actually had the vocabulary to talk about it and a better understanding of just the systems that we're all living in and upholding. And I, I speak for myself as well. I'm not, um, you know, lifelong learning journey as a person who has the privilege to make this learning really academic instead of personal, right? Um, there's another passage in the book that's, um, again, my sister-in-law highlighted, but the, the challenge for a parent in the subordinate cast is to calculate the precise and optimal moment to break the truth to a child before the caste system does it for him to figure out how to stretch their innocence until the last possible moment before it is too late. And that is not something that has to happen. That's not something that parents have to think about when they're raising white children, right? Okay. Like your, your education and racism and the caste system can be this kind of abstract academic conversation. Um, now I'm rambling. So I, I, I see progress in that um, white people are you know, the picture is enhancing a little bit, but also that's really slow and that's really frustrating. And I know a bunch of middle-class white people reading a book and being like, oh, I get it now. Um, it's like too little, too late. So I don't, that, that might be a dark thought to leave it on. Um, but that's kind of where my mind is. All right. Alan, how about you? Um, well, I'm going to answer that, but if you don't mind, I, I Aaron, your example, that story to me, um, there was a passage in cast um, and it was from an enslaver. And I think the quote was that he had no better pleasure than when he could hear the sound of the driver's lash among the slaves because he knew that the system was working, right? That silence that you heard after the not no apology it's no different it's no different so um that that story is very powerful uh you know nate the the little bit of hope i have frankly is i think in the how we can use this book um i'm going to give you a really nerdy answer uh which seems appropriate given the name yeah, of your podcast right spot for it. Let's yeah, go. okay so um I recently had a problem with a washing machine, right? So I'm gonna equate, this is gonna be weird, but trust me. Um, it's like when you buy an appliance or an electronic and eventually something stops working and you go to the instruction manual, right? Because that's, right, I think to Hallie's point, it's like we, we have a lot of people who really wanna do the work to make things better. And so this happened to me, we had our washing machine stop working and I couldn't figure it out. So I went to the instruction manual and it said, it indicated it had something to do with some sensor and, man, I tore that thing apart. I had it upside down. I had the back off. I'm looking for the problem and could not figure it out. And then I went to the schematic at the back of that book, right? And there's a big difference between an instruction manual and the schematic. And in the schematic, what I realized is there was a piece missing in the back of the drum. I knew nothing about it, but I didn't know that, you know, how that system had been constructed. And it wasn't until I had a framing for how that system was constructed that I could figure out what had gone wrong and could at least then employ the work. And I, I you know, I kind of feel like I've been equipped um, at this institution in particular with a whole lot of instruction manuals about anti-racism. And I've been tinkering around with the issues and trying to understand it for a while, but it's not until I understand how that system was constructed in the first place that I can really do anything about it. So I, to me, that's the hope is that it gives, it gives a historical framing that frankly, it just, I, I wasn't there. And, and that's why I hope, I'll, you know, that little bit of hope will cause a lot more people to read this book. 
I think it's a, your point at the start of this call. It's absolutely essential book for people to read. That's well said. I kind of want to get us out of here on this question. And it's one that Alan answered earlier on. And Hallie and Aaron, I want to put it to you. Um, how are you using cast in your life today? Like, how are you, how are you using this book afterwards in order to uh, push people in the right direction? Uh, Aaron, I'll start with you. So, I mean, as I said, I'm using little clips from the book and putting it out on Twitter and sending it to friends and so, um, and promoting it. So, excuse me, <clears throat> I send out a list at the end of every training that I do with recommended books. So it's on my list of recommended books, um, but I'm pulling quotes. I think for me, it just affirms so much of what I have been saying for a long time. And so one of my little mantras has been, we can't fix what we're not willing to face. And I believe she clearly articulates that. And I think like yesterday, again, in a training, somebody suggested the whole make America great again. And, and my concern about, and I, I said this in the training, which might probably piss some people off. I don't really care. Um, but I said the danger of Donald Trump and people like Donald Trump, the whole notion of make America great again. And, um, talking about America in a particular way is he articulated patriotism as being only uplifting America and talking about how exceptional she is. And I actually believe I love America so much that like my children, I will say, yay, America and ooh, America. I love her that much. I actually don't think it's love to just uphold the good parts. And I, and I actually, if you really love a person as a teacher, if I really love my students, I don't just let them get away with crap. If you turn in crap work, I'm not loving you to give you an A for that crap work, especially when I know that you can do better. As a basketball coach, if I let you decide and never touch the lines when you ran sprints and have bad form, I'm not loving you by holding you to a higher standard. And so um, yesterday I challenged this gentleman who said, you know, but you're so critical. I said, yeah, I'm critical and I love, I'm willing to celebrate too. And I think what this book does is it confirms what I've been saying for so long, that we have to be willing to face our truth if we're going to fix it. If we're unwilling to face our history, we can't ever get better. We will continue to be back in this cycle. We'll be here five years from now and eight years from now and 10 years from now. I think what January 6th did, and this book so clearly articulates this, is it ripped the bandage off a festering wound. We have a hole in our flesh and we have the opportunity right now to cleanse that hole which is hard it's going to sting we need antibiotics we need some antiseptic we need to like pull out the duck that's going to hurt but if we were to put a bandage on it without doing that we're going to be right back here and and that's what this book did for me and, and what it can do for people is let's look at our truth let's say ick and let's do the work we need all of us do to dismantle the caste system yeah Rapper Marlon Kraft has a song called State of the Union, and it has a line that I just, every time I hear it, I'm like, yes. The first step to ending white supremacy is needing, sorry, the first step to ending white supremacy is wanting to end white supremacy. And like, we aren't there right now. Uh, Hallie, I think we get last word here. Uh, what are you doing with this book in your life? Uh, I really like what Alan said about having to understand the system itself. Um, I think what I have been thinking about is, and I mentioned earlier that, you know, I'd kind of gotten as far as, okay, the system is racist that we're in. And so we need to do what we can to make these like little bits and pieces better. And the kind of aha in this book for me was, oh no, the system is working exactly as it was intended to. And it was specifically designed to create this caste system and keep people in their roles within it. And so it changes how I think about um, just going, going about problems or wanting to make change where we really have to take a step back and it's not enough to just, um, you know, ask our white city council members to do a little better and show up with a little uh, bolder leadership. We need to get underneath the much deeper layers of um, why we're even in this place to begin with. So thinking about that, thinking about my own role um, in my profession and everything that I do and really questioning um, 
you know, when I feel that I have success or progression, how did I get there and how am I staying there and how much of what I'm doing in my life is me trying to cling to, to my cast position versus something that I actually, you know, earned with my non-existent bootstrap pulling. Um, so that's, that's what I'm thinking about. That's really well said. Uh, I just want to thank all three of you for coming on the show today. I respect and admire all three of you for the work you do in your different spheres. And I just really appreciate you all and glad that you were able to join me today. Uh, if people want to follow your work online, where should they look? Aaron, let's start with you. So I'm on Twitter, Aaron Jones in 2016. I am on LinkedIn. I have three Facebook pages. Do not try to personally friend me because I'm full but five, that's what happens when you run for office. But Aaron Jones 2016 is where I talk about what I'm thinking. If you're an educator, Aaron Jones LLC is where I share resources. I'm also on Instagram, Aaron in 2016. And then I am writing a book. I just signed a contract for my first book and it will be about race and talking about race. So hopefully soon I'll be able to share that with you too. Let's go, let's go. Uh, Hallie, where can folks follow your work? Hallie, Rebecca, pretty much everywhere except for Facebook, stay off of Facebook. And I'm mostly ranting about vaccine distribution right now. So get hyped. <laughs> and then Alan, how about you? Oh, I'm a boring old white man. You need to um, you need to go to plu.edu backslash diversity and inclusion because it takes a village. This team on this campus is doing amazing work. So I'd point you directly to DNI work at PLU. Love it. Uh, Hallie, good news for you. Our next episode of recording is with Jenny May talking about vaccine distribution and talking about the various vaccines and like the problems in the pipeline. And so you'll, you'll get another taste. Again, thank you for coming on. Uh, Wakanda forever, y'all. Wash your damn hands. Wear a mask. Get vaccinated. And if you are a member of the Tacoma City Council and are listening to this show, hold police accountable. Channel 253 is a member-supported podcast network. I'm producer Doug Mackey, and I'm asking you to become a member and show your support. Go to channel253.com slash membership to join. Thank you. I'm going to be the last uh, cisgendered white man in this seat for for some time, I think. That's a good thing. Awesome. I love it. Nerd Farmer is part of the Channel 253 podcast network. Check out our other shows, Interchangeable White Ladies, Give Me the Mic, We Are Tacoma, Move to Tacoma, Taco Man, Flounder's B-Team, Crossing Division, Citizen Tacoma, and What Say You? This is Channel 253.